right, tonight is the last Thursday of the month, so we're going to do an open study tonight. And I have um, a total here of seven questions, and there are some open studies that I only get to one or two. Um, My hope is, and I think we might even be able to accomplish this, might be able to cover all seven of these tonight. Um, You know, the questions, the the answers, of course, for the questions depends upon the particular topics and how in-depth the answer needs to be, depending upon what is asked. But uh, these are all excellent questions, but uh, some of them have fairly short answers, so I think we'll be able to accomplish at least most of these, if not all seven. Uh, just as a brief reminder in regards to the open study format, um, it's, it really is, even though you know this is something that we've been experimenting with for the last three or four years, uh, once a month, it really is a very uh, valid biblical way to study in a question-answer format in which the questions are generated by you, not just by me determining what we're going to study. There are many examples in Scripture. For instance, Jesus often taught um, some of his great teachings were based upon questions that people asked him. And uh, then we have the example of Paul the Apostle. Some of his greatest segments of the letters that he wrote to the churches were based upon questions that the churches had in which they wrote him asking for clarity and insight. And that spurred, you know, that spurred um, really good, profitable study. And um, so I just wanted to remind you of the, the value of this kind of approach to studying. And uh, also uh, keep in mind as we're going through these, uh, feel free. We have more of an openness and more of a, uh, a flexibility in the format. So if anything that I say in answer to these questions um, confuses you or, or needs some additional explanation, don't hesitate to uh, raise your hand, and I'll be glad to uh, camp out a little bit further until we are all on the same page of understanding. All right, let's start first by going to the book of First Kings. Um, these questions tonight are some of my favorite kinds of questions that I get for the open study in that these questions were all um, stimulated, as far as I understand, from uh, your, the, the ones who wrote these questions for me, your own reading through Scripture, your own study, and as you, um, you know, as you come to different portions of Scripture and are looking carefully at what you're reading, uh, maybe not understanding every detail that's found in these sections. And so this first um, chapter, 1 Kings 14, the person that wrote has actually three separate questions based upon this chapter. I won't read the entire chapter because we've got, you know, we've got a fairly lengthy chapter here of some 30 verses, but um, I'll read the portions that are connected to the question. The first question was this, and this is based upon 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 13. Let's read that. It says, And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. The question that was asked is, what was it, what was this something that the Lord found in this person that was pleasing to him? 
All right, just to get the, uh, the context and the flavor of what's going on here, let's read starting up from, say, uh, verse 7. We're in 1 Kings chapter 14, and I'll read from verse 7 to get the immediate context. Um, you guys are, are familiar with Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the, the man that was the focal point of the beginning of the northern kingdom of Israel. This was when Israel immediately after the days of Solomon. So Solomon has died. And he didn't die in a particularly great spiritual condition. Remember that Solomon started out really well in his walk with the Lord and he drifted further and further away. And because of issues that Solomon um, you know, participated in in terms of spiritual compromise, the Lord pronounced a judgment upon the kingdom. And um, the Lord said, though, because of David's sake, Solomon's father, David was faithful to the Lord and a man after God's own heart. For David's sake, the Lord would not bring the judgment during the days of Solomon, but would bring the judgment in the generation to follow. So the generation following Solomon, the kingdom, which was a united kingdom under David and then Solomon, was split into a southern kingdom, which is Judea. This is where Jerusalem was located. It was primarily two and a half tribes. It was the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and part of the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And then the northern kingdom, which was the other tribes. So you're talking about some ten tribes. So um, the northern kingdom now is under the leadership of Jeroboam. Jer, how do I spell that? J-E-R-O? Okay. So the northern kingdom's under the leadership of Jeroboam. Jeroboam himself uh, was a man of great spiritual compromise. And I say great not in the sense of good great, great in the sense of bad great. Um, he made some, some, some very horrible spiritual compromises and led the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, further and further away from the Lord. And now what we're having here in chapter 14 is a prophecy against Jeroboam and against his leadership. This is the judgment of the Lord that's coming upon the northern kingdom and specifically upon his own household. Let's read from verse 7. Go and tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel, Israel, the northern kingdom, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only which was right, that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. In in essence there, the Lord is declaring that the house of Jeroboam is of 
the same spiritual value as dung. It's a, it's a, it's a strong word of insult and judgment. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. Now, that's not a blessing. You know, when you die, you know, if dogs eat your body after you have died, that is not considered a blessing. That was always connected to those who are under the curse of God. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, and go to your house. When your feet, and this is being spoken directly to Jeroboam's wife, when your feet, let's see where I left off. Uh, what was the verse? Okay, thank you. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. What had happened was uh, Jeroboam's um, son, his, his uh, dearly beloved son, was not well, and so he sent his wife to the prophet to determine what was going to happen to the child. And so now the Lord, through the prophet, is declaring um, that there is going to be a judgment upon not just the household of Jeroboam, but specifically upon this child's life. So he says, Arise, therefore, and go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of, he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Okay, now, again, that's a lot of backdrop, but we needed a little bit just to be able to make sense out of the answer. The question was, what was the something that the Lord found in this child that was pleasing? Okay, the, the, the bottom line answer is, we can't know for sure because the detail isn't given for us. We're not told specifically what it is. We have good hints in history, but this is one of those cases where we have to lean a little bit upon early history and what is called in those days oral tradition rather than strictly upon the testimony of Scripture. Now, we can't be as confident in the oral tradition as we are in Scripture itself because the oral tradition is not inspired by God like Scripture is. But that doesn't mean oral tradition is useless. And what I'm talking about with oral tradition, how many of you have heard this term before, the Talmud? The Talmud, you can still buy this today. You can, you know, there are certain publishers that sell this and you can purchase a copy. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. It'd be a humongous um, investment to purchase one because we're talking about hundreds of, you know, volumes of information. It's, it's gigantic in terms of the full extent of the Talmud. But the Talmud is essentially uh, the collection of all of the teachings of the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis throughout history. All the things that they taught, all the things that they said, and all of their accounts of their understanding of the meaning of biblical history. And this became known as the oral tradition because it came from the mouths of the rabbis. At that time, it was not in writing. It was just passed on from word of mouth to, from one generation to another. Later in history, it was collected, it was written, and you, know, you can actually purchase it and read it. Now, in the Talmud, this specific incident about what happened to Jer- uh, Jeroboam's son and why it is that the Lord found him pleasing, it's described, and again, we can't be 100% certain about this, but it's the best guess that we have, okay? It's described that this son was not a young infant son or even a young child, 
but that this son at this point in, at time, of time was actually a, an adult son, a young adult, and that he was transitioning into beginning to take more and more responsibility within the kingdom of his father, Jeroboam. And that while Jeroboam was drifting further and further away from the Lord, the son had been fairly faithful to the Lord. And that one of the things that Jeroboam had done was that he had forbidden in his leading the children of Israel into greater and greater idolatry, he had forbidden the people in his kingdom to celebrate the Old Testament festivals that we see uh, identified in the law of God, the seven sacred festivals that they were to, to celebrate as part of the spiritual calendar of Israel. And that the people who had been forbidden to celebrate these festivals were actually kept from doing so by guards that Jeroboam had stationed to keep them from this celebration. According to the Talmud, the son of Jeroboam actually ordered these guards to allow the people to celebrate the festivals. And so there was some conflict between father and son, and the Lord, according to this oral tradition, the Lord um, looked favorably upon the effort of the son to support the desire and the effort of the people to worship the Lord as they should. And so that would be, in that case, what was pleasing about this son of Jeroboam in the eyes of the Lord. And what was given to him as a blessing, interestingly enough, was burial. In that all Jeroboam himself and all of Jeroboam's family, everyone that was to be born from him, was either going to be have their body eaten by dogs after they died or eaten by the birds, the carrion you know, eaters, the birds of the air, if they died out in the open country. But the son would be mourned when he died by the inhabitants of Israel, recognizing his goodness, and he would be given an honorable burial. Now, there's a second question that goes along with this that the person didn't ask, but I'll raise it. That is why, if he was so pleasing to the Lord, and it certainly was more pleasing than Jeroboam, why did he die and Jeroboam live? Think about that. I mean, normally we think in terms of good things happen to good guys, and bad things happen to bad guys. Now, see, what's happening here is there is, a, there is a judgment upon Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam is allowed to live a little bit further because it's not just Jeroboam that's at issue here. It's all the children of Israel who are allowing this man to lead them into idolatry. They've deserved a wicked ruler, and so the Lord is extending his life to continue in his wickedness. The Lord actually removes the good son out of the picture altogether and views this from his perspective, even though it's a shorter life in this world, it's ultimately a blessing to be removed from this environment in which the whole nation is drifting away from the Lord. Now, he's being removed not to just extinction. He's being removed, if he's pleasing to the Lord, he's being removed to Abraham's bosom. In his death, he will receive ultimate reward and blessing in the presence of the Lord. So, okay, that's our first question. I can't say for sure what was pleasing about this son, but the oral tradition gives us a good indicator of a likely answer. Yes? 
No, this is, this, this is specifically a judgment. The part we read is specifically a judgment just upon the household of Jeroboam. You know, like his own descendants, right? Not, not the entire northern kingdom of Israel. Although, the entire, I will say it this way, the entire northern uh, kingdom of Israel was under the Lord's judgment during this time. And they would experience not just judgment here, but eventually that entire nation would be carried away into captivity. And that's why we refer to them historically now as the lost tribes of Israel. They're lost because they were captured, they were, they were defeated and captured by the Assyrians, they were sprinkled throughout the Assyrian Empire, never to be re-identified again. You know? So they lost not just their lives, but they lost their national identity and their covenant identity, which was most significant. All right, yes, David? Sure, no problem. I'm in no rush. Right. Yes. I believe so. Yes, I believe. I believe that the Lord removing the the son was not just a blessing for the son, but it was a further expression of the Lord's judgment upon the entire northern kingdom. No, no question about it. It's more than more going on here than just Jeroboam's family. You know, it's how the Lord is dealing with that entire group of ten tribes in their covenant relationship with the Lord and their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Okay. All right. The next um, two questions come from a section toward the end of the chapter. Let's skip down to let's skip down to verse 19 and I'll read from 19 through to 28. It says now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Now, that's the southern kingdom. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah, the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed. So you can see right off the bat that while things were really bad in the northern kingdom, they weren't much better at this point in the southern kingdom. Verse 23, For they also built for themselves high places, and pillars, and ashram. Ashram is a, a, a version of, a, of a, um, an idol that was worshipped. An ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. That's just, uh, it's an idiom to describe that, you know, this was a widespread problem in the southern kingdom. It wasn't just an isolated little problem that was going on in one little pocket or one little community. community. This idolatry and rebellion against the Lord had spread throughout the southern kingdom. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, meaning that the southern kingdom now has begun to compromise in all the ways that the Canaanites had before the 
Israelites even entered the promised land. And it was because of the actions of the Canaanites, remember, they were so severe in their own wickedness that the Lord had, in, in something that our modern generation uh, struggles to understand at times, the Lord had commanded Israel when they went into the promised land to drive out all the inhabitants of the land and to wipe them out. And it was because of their great wickedness. And so now we see Israel participating in all of the same wicked ways that the Canaanites had. Verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, this is one of the pharaohs, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? All right, our next question is, why did he, and this is referring to Rehoboam, um, Solomon's son, the king of Judah, why did he make shields of bronze and take away the gold ones? Okay, first, this was just a, a basic misunderstanding from the text. Uh, Rehoboam was the king of Judah. And Shishak was the king or the pharaoh of Egypt. And these two were in conflict against each other, nation to nation. Rehoboam was the beneficiary of many of the blessings because he was Solomon's son and he took Solomon's place when Solomon died. But many of the blessings that Solomon had established in his kingdom. Remember, Solomon had become the richest king ever in history up until that point. And he was extravagant in the display of his riches and his economic greatness. One of his extravagances was that he had a special honor guard that the law of God, the law of Moses, never commanded to be established. And yet Solomon went ahead and made this honor guard for himself as king, meaning whenever he traveled throughout the city, he had a special guard, a special troop of soldiers that would accompany him. And for this special guard, he had made shields of pure gold. Now we're not talking about like little metal you know, ceremonial shields. We're talking about shields that would be able to actually guard a man going into battle made out of pure gold. Now, I don't know exactly how big these shields are, but gold was as valuable in those days as it is in our generation. If any one of us owned, possessed a single one of these shields, we would be set for life in terms of the value of that item. Not just the, the physical gold, if you melted it down and sold it on the open market, with gold right now being somewhere around $1,100 for an ounce. And we're talking pounds in a shield, okay? But just the intrinsic value of it being, you know, formed into such a shape and used for such an important ceremonial purpose. So these shields of gold were established and, and were used by the honor guard of the king. So Shishak, who is the pharaoh of Egypt, 
has heard the tale, you know, and this was worldwide, the reputation spread throughout the world, beyond Egypt. Um, Shishak has heard the tale of the opulence, the great extravagant riches that were found in the land of Judah and the king, you know, that were owned by the king of Judah. So Shishak brought his army up to Jerusalem. He invaded Jerusalem and he marched into the temple and he took these shields of gold from Rehoboam. Now, the good thing about what Shishak did was that he didn't destroy the temple and he didn't destroy the city of Jerusalem. He just wanted certain treasures. And he came and he took what he wanted. And then he left, all right? And so um, when he left, it left the guards of Rehoboam without any shields to use. And so what Rehoboam did is he didn't replace the shields of gold with more shields of gold because he was not being blessed with the revenue streams that the Lord had blessed Solomon with. And so what Rehoboam chose to do is he replaced shields of gold with shields of bronze. Now, shields of bronze are not valueless, but they're not anywhere close to the value of shields of gold. And not only in terms of just the intrinsic value difference between gold and bronze, there's a spiritual and symbolic difference and distinction in terms of what's going on here. And that is that bronze serves throughout Scripture, not in every single case that we find it, but in many of the cases where we find items made out of bronze, it serves as a symbol of God's judgment. So, what's going on here is, it's not Rehoboam that got rid of the gold shields. He didn't want to get rid of the gold shields. It's Shishak, the pharaoh of Egypt, who steals, who you know, conquers uh, the, uh, the armies of Rehoboam to the point of just being able to march in and take whatever he wants to take. And Rehoboam replaces them with bronze. He is thinking, probably, Rehoboam is, practically, in terms of I'll replace them with bronze because I can afford bronze. But the Lord is thinking above and beyond Rehoboam's motivations. And he's thinking in terms of what is going to be displayed as a distinction between the kingdom under Solomon, which was, which was an expression of God's awesome and overflowing blessing upon him, versus the kingdom under Rehoboam, who is, who is leading the nation, just like we saw with Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, leading the nation into rebellion and idolatry toward the Lord. As a result, they are going to be under the judgment of God. Now, the, uh, the second question was from verse 28, or actually the third question, second in this section. It says, As often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. The question was, why did the guard carry the shields to the guard room every time? Again, this portion, in terms of that specific question, the Scripture doesn't explain why they did what they did. So we're left to draw our own conclusion. My, um, my conclusion is they, they did so out of fear, meaning that what had just happened was that all of the shields of the guards had been stolen because they were on display in a public setting. And, uh, you know, Shishak heard about it, and he came in, marched in, and just took them. 
So now, even though the bronze shields are not nearly as valuable as the gold shields, instead of leaving them on public display, you know, where previously Rehoboam had been so confident in his own security, now he's living in constant fear because Shishak came in once and stole his shields. What's to stop him from coming in any time in the future that he wants and taking anything else that he may want? And so the shields were, were brought out whenever Rehoboam needed his honor guard to be with him. But as soon as their service was accomplished each and every time, they took the shields and secured them in the guardhouse, which is a much more secure location. And so my conclusion is, um, you know, Rehoboam, because he is under the judgment of God, has no real confidence in his circumstances. And that, you know, the principle there certainly does apply to our lives. You know, we can, when we're walking before the Lord in the way that we should, in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, and we know we're doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, we walk with much more confidence in our life. When we're compromising, when we're doing what's wrong in the eyes of the Lord, we know we're, we're not doing the right thing, we're displeasing the Lord, um, there's much less confidence in our life and in our circumstances. You know, anything coming our way could be, you know, the next a bad thing because we have, no, we have no confidence that the Lord is protecting us, blessing us, watching over us, and guarding us. All right, so those are our questions from the book of 1 Kings chapter 14. Any last thoughts or questions about that before we move to the next set of questions? Okay, why don't we turn to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament. And we'll start in chapter 1. We've got a set of three, actually a total of four Hebrew questions. Three are directed right uh, to specific passages, and one is an overall question based upon those passages. Okay, the first question is from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. This first portion of the book of Hebrews is uh, dedicated to specifically comparing the the person, mission, and work of the Lord Jesus to the servants of the Old Testament. And the very first comparison that's made between the service of the Lord Jesus as the Son of God and the servants of the Old Testament is comparing Jesus to angels. Uh, while it's not uh, commonly focused on in our perspective, angels are certainly identified for us and presented to us, introduced to us as the servants of God, and they, they serve a very important function throughout the Old Testament. For instance, like when we, uh, when we see the children of Israel marching through the wilderness in their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, they're being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Lord identifies that as the angel of the Lord who's leading them from location to location. Uh, when, they, you know, when they left Egypt on the Passover night, there was an, an angel that passed over the entire land of Egypt, slaying all the firstborn sons of, of Egypt. So we see you know, throughout all of the Old Testament, we see the, the behind-the-scenes presence and activity of angels. So Jesus here is being compared to angels. And we'll read verse 5, which says, For to which of the angels 
did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right, so clearly what's taking place in verse 5 is a declaration that Jesus is superior to angels. That's the theme of all of chapter 1, and the Lord gives us several different ways to demonstrate the superiority spiritually of the Lord Jesus to any angel. But the specific point that he makes in verse 5 is he says, by way of comparison as a contrast between Jesus and angels, to which angel did God ever make such a statement? Did he ever make such a promise? Did he ever make such a declaration? And the declaration is, you are my son, which is clearly stated by God the Father to Jesus as his son. Today I have begotten you. Okay, and the question is, that was asked, what does begotten mean? And there was a a follow-up question that went along with this. Do Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to teach that Jesus was created like the angels were created? Now, the answer to that second question, do Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse and, and, in a sense, misuse this verse to make it say that Jesus is a created being? The answer is yes. They absolutely do use this verse in that way, misuse this verse, abuse it, twist it to mean something that it was never intended to mean. We can be clear about this from many different passages, and believe me, it would easily take up the rest of our study time tonight, to demonstrate this point, but Jesus is not a created being. You are, I am, and every other living thing in all history is a created being with the singular exception of Jesus. He is the one exception to this rule that all beings are created. We know that God the Father is not a created being. We know that Jesus, the Son of God, is not a created being. And we know that the Holy Spirit of God is not a created being. But all other beings, angels and human beings, and all animal beings, and all bird beings, and all fish beings, are all created beings. Okay? Now, What does, though, the word begotten mean, and how do they misuse it to make it say, even though it was not intended to say this, to make it say that Jesus is created? Well, in their teaching, they say that it implies begotten has to do with birth. And it also has this meaning of bringing forth. And so they teach that there was a time in history, if you go far enough back in history, that Jesus didn't exist and that God gave birth to him and God brought him forth. And it was at that point that he was created. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses do make a distinction between Jesus and all other beings in that they give him the privilege and the honor of being, in their teaching, 
the first created being. That sounds pretty honorable, right? It's pretty, that's pretty great to be the very first created being. Well, if he was created, then certainly I would be on board with them in this and say, if he is created, it's better to be the first one than somewhere you know, along the line in a, in a series of other created beings. At least he would be distinguished and he would rise to a greater level of prominence as the first of the created beings. But if he's a created being at all, then he is not God the Son. He is not divine. He is not deity. He is, in their teaching, angelic. Meaning that he is the first of the angel class that was created, who then later, of course, incarnated as a human being. Now, is that what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across when he uses the term begotten? The answer is no, absolutely not. And we can be absolutely certain about this. Let's, um, let's turn back for a moment to the book of Psalms, chapter 2. Psalm 2. Now, the term begotten certainly does have the meaning or the sense of to give birth to or to bring forth something new. But the context determines how that applies. For instance, if I said to you, I just had a new idea. I just gave birth in my mind and in my imagination to a whole new concept of how we're going to do a certain thing. And it's going to change everything that we're doing together because of this new concept that I have. I've just given birth to this new idea. Now, do you think that it, me, using that term in that way means that I, like a woman does when she gives birth to a child, that I literally gave birth to that idea? No, you understand just from context that I, it just means that I brought forth a new idea in my mind and in my imagination and we're linking it to the concept of birth because it really is a brand new thing in terms of a new thought or a new concept. And so there is something because it clearly does say that Jesus was begotten in Hebrews 1.5 and it clearly does say that the Father is saying that to the Son that the Son has been begotten. It does not mean, because there are many other passages that teach that Jesus is not a created being, but in what sense is he not created, but was given birth to? And we're not talking about his entrance into the world, because he was, of course, born as a human being, but in the sense of a new thing being brought forth that never was before. What we'll see here, let's read from Psalm 2. This is, of course, known as one of the messianic psalms. These are prophetic psalms, songs that the Lord gave to the psalmist in which he was describing through them, through their song, elements of the person and mission of the Messiah which would occur later in history. This is one of those important previews 
spiritual previews of the mission of the Messiah. We'll read from verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed is the same word for Messiah. Against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king. This is God the Father speaking about God the Son, the Messiah. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All right, so this is the Father clearly speaking to the Son in the original psalm, and then the writer of Hebrews takes this specific verse, verse 7, and quotes it in Hebrews 1.5, and it's speaking about a specific moment in the life story and mission of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus. What we have to determine in the context, the original context as it was given, because that's what Hebrews is quoting from, what moment is being identified here in the story of Jesus? For instance, if we were to plot the life of Jesus on a timeline, and it would have to be plotted this way with arrows at the end because there's no beginning to his story and there's no end to his story. But there are specific moments in which, for instance, Jesus enters the world in Bethlehem, born as a human being into this world. Then later, there's a moment in which he's uh, baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, as we recently studied. Then there's a moment later, and I'm just picking a few moments, there's a moment when he goes to the cross and he dies as our Savior, as our substitute. And then there's a moment right after that, three days later, in which he rises from the dead. And then 40 days after that, there's a moment in which he ascends back to heaven. And then from that point forward, there are extended moments where he sits enthroned in the heavens in the fulfillment of the accomplishment of his mission. All right, now there you have, and then there's a moment coming, of course, in which he's going to return in the second coming. Now, I've given you a lot of good moments to choose from. Which moment is the psalmist speaking about when God the Father is quoted in verse 6 as saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son today. A specific moment in his story. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Which moment is in focus? Okay, it's not his death, because at his death, we don't see Jesus ruling over anything. I mean, he, in the overall sense, he's ruling, but he's not, actually, he's not actually ruling over anything at that moment. It is true that the moment he begins to rule is the moment of his ascension. Okay, that is absolutely true in which Jesus is enthroned at the moment of his ascension and begins to rule 
over all of the nations from the throne of God in heaven. But he doesn't go directly from the cross to the ascension. He first must experience the resurrection from the dead. And what we're told throughout the New Testament testimony is, even though the ascension is the fulfillment point of what God had always planned for the Messiah, it's the culmination, the finality point of his mission, it's the resurrection that gets him from his lowest moment, technically speaking, on the cross, to his highest moment on the throne as he returns in his ascension and is welcomed back as the conquering Messiah. So the resurrection from the dead is what is specifically in focus in this specific statement. The son being begotten, today I have begotten you. It's a specific moment, a specific day, is the resurrection. And then everything that flows out of the resurrection when he ascends back to heaven is him ruling over all things. Now, what that means is the resurrection is in some sense a new beginning. It's in some sense a bringing forth of a brand new thing. And this is true, most especially, it's true for all who are truly resurrected, but nobody else has been resurrected yet. Now, we have, we have resurrections of a type that are given to us in Scripture other than the resurrection of Jesus. For instance, Jesus raised some people from the dead. We have a few, a handful, that are raised from the dead in the Old Testament. But as we've talked about many times before, what distinguishes his resurrection from theirs? Like Lazarus was resurrected, Lazarus later dies. And everyone that was ever resurrected in human history, other than Jesus, is resurrected back. It's more technically a physical complete resuscitation. It's truly a resurrection because they truly were dead, but it's not a resurrection to a glorified state. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised to a glorified state. It's in that sense that he's begotten. All right? This is a bringing forth of a new thing in history. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he's raised to a new glorious, awesome, powerful condition, an eternal condition, an undying condition, a condition in which he is no longer subject to any of the weaknesses of this fallen world. He lives above and beyond all of those things. And it's that sense in which he was described by the Father as begotten. Okay? All right. Now, let's look at three passages, and I'm going to do these quickly for the sake of time, uh, that just link, I want to link this because I know some of you are taking notes. The first one is Acts 13.33. You've heard the explanation. Now these are just going to help cement the perspective and the understanding. And so that you know that I'm not guessing when I'm linking the resurrection to the begotten the begotten condition of the Son. I am not guessing. I'm going to link those in these passages. First is Acts 13.33. It says this, it's speaking about God, this He has fulfilled to us 
their children. By raising Jesus, as also it is written, where? In the second psalm. And he quotes it. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And he goes on and quotes another passage from the Old Testament. All right, but the, the, the main point that we want to establish here is that the book of Acts tells us in no uncertain language that the passage in Hebrews 1.5, the passage in Psalm 2.7, the wording of being begotten that the Father uses about the Son is a description of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Okay? Is that clear? Good. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. This one doesn't use the exact same wording, but it conveys the same exact concept. This is one of my favorite passages concerning the resurrection. I've focused on it on uh, more than one Easter Sunday service before. Uh, so it should be somewhat familiar to you. I'll read verse, uh, I'll read verse 2 through 4. Yes, Romans chapter 1. Verse 4 is our key verse, but I'll read starting in verse 2. It says, Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus is in some very significant and important way, he is declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection. Now, the point of this is that even before he was raised from the dead, he was the Son of God. He was the Son of God at what point along this timeline? Eternity passes, exactly right. He was the Son of God before the worlds were created. He was the Son of God at creation. He was the Son of God through all of Old Testament history. He was the Son of God in his incarnation. He was the Son of God all throughout his life. And he's the Son of God ever since then. And he always will be the Son of God. But there is an important sense in which when he was raised from the dead, it was clearly revealed to anyone that had eyes to see and ears to hear that he truly is the Son of God. The wording here is he's declared to be the Son of God in His resurrection. And it's that Greek word that we get our English word horizon from. And you've heard me describe this before, that it's a, it's a distinguishing between when you, the, re, the, the purpose of the horizon in our field of view is when we're looking out over the horizon, we see the line between heaven and earth. It's a distinction between those two categories. It's the resurrection of Jesus that distinguishes Him from every other human being sets him apart in the category of Son of God. God the Son. Because he's raised from the dead. All right, let's look at one last passage. Revelation 1.5. These are all just, again, connected to the concept of resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the point at which he is begotten. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, or the kings on earth. He's identified here in his resurrection as the firstborn of the dead. Now, firstborn is a technical word which does mean first in a sequence, but it means more than first in a sequence. It means one who is in the position of preeminence in that category. So the firstborn son in a family was not just technically the son who was born first chronologically. He also was identified as the son that was going to inherit the family leadership. He is the preeminent son among all the sons in the household. So to identify Jesus as the firstborn from the dead means that it's not just that he's the first one resurrected into this glorified state. He was that. But he's also the one who, because of his resurrection, is placed in the preeminent position, the rulership position over all things. So, again, the begotten concept is connected to the resurrection experience and not just the physical resurrection, but the resurrection, the physical resurrection to a new, greater, permanent, glorified state. That is Jesus being begotten from the dead. Okay? Any questions about that one? That one's kind of a technical one, but it is important because as the questioner asked, whole, you know, whole um, um, cult doctrinal errors are based on a misunderstanding at times with a single word. Yes? Yes. Yes. Praise God. Yeah, that, that is no question one of their core errors and certainly one of the most dangerous ones. Yeah. Well, let's look at the second question from Hebrews. This is now in chapter 7. No, we're not done yet. We have a long way to go before we sleep. Now we'll, we'll get as far as we can go, and I don't know if we'll get all these. Hebrews chapter 7. And this question was from verse 18 specifically. <clears throat> this is part of and continuing. Uh, the whole book of Hebrews is a series of comparisons made between different aspects of the Old Covenant and different aspects of the New Covenant. This is one of those in which the entire covenants now are being compared with each other, old covenant to new covenant. Verse 18 says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside 
because of its weakness and uselessness. The question was this, in what sense is the commandment useless? And it is referring here, when it says commandment in verse 18, it is referring to one of the commandments, and not just any one specific one, but commandment representing what we would call the Ten Commandments. And because we're not just dealing just with these ten, we're talking about the Ten Commandments as they represent, as a summary, the entire law of God, which is also known as the law of Moses. So we're looking here at all of the commandments of the Old Testament. All 613 individual commandments. So now let's read it from that perspective. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment. Which one? All 613. On one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. All right, the question is an excellent question. In what sense is the commandment useless? And here's the thing I don't want us to be unclear about. The commandment, all 10, all 613, according to Hebrews 7.18, are now weak and useless. But then the question needs to be asked, in what sense? In what sense are they weak and useless? So what do you think? Okay, that's a good, that's a good starting point. It's always helpful to look at the immediate context when there's such a, a dramatic point being made. The very next verse says, for, meaning connected to what's just been stated in verse 18 about the weakness and uselessness of the law, for, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The better hope is the, the hope of the new covenant, the hope of the gospel. All right, so in what sense are the commandments of the Old Testament weak and useless? In this sense, they are weak and useless to save us. They are weak and useless to give us life, and they're weak and useless to perfect us. All three statements are made in the New Testament. The law is described for us, and I can't go off onto a whole teaching about what the law is useful for. We'll address that before we're done, but you know, in terms of giving a adequate attention to it, I can't uh, do that in the amount of time that we have. But it is very useful in certain senses. At the same time, it's very useless in other senses. So what we have to determine in the New Testament, and this is what Christians constantly struggle with, the right relationship that we are to have with the law of God in the Old Testament. A lot of Christians don't want to be bothered with it, so they just ignore it altogether. Or some Christians look at it from the exact opposite perspective and give too much attention to it in the wrong sense, as though by my efforts to study this and keep this and practice this, I will make myself more right with God. 
the law of God from the day that Jesus died on the cross forward is weak and useless in order to save us, give us life, and perfect us. I say from the day of the cross forward, that doesn't mean that in the Old Testament, I don't want to be misunderstood here, that before Jesus died on the cross, the, the law was able to save the people of God, it was able to give them life, and was able to perfect them. It never was able to do any of those things. It's just that since the cross forward, it's now obvious and clear as a declaration of God that the law cannot save. What we mean by that is simply you can have the whole list of all 613 individuals' laws in the law of Moses and the law of God uppermost in your mind, and you can set yourself to practice every single one of those as good as you can do to practice them, to keep them, to obey them. And by doing so, on the day of judgment, if you stand before <clears throat> the throne of God and you give an account for your life, and the, and the Lord says, okay, we're going to evaluate your life and see whether you rate heaven or not, whether you rate salvation or not, what do you have to say for yourself? And if you say, okay, well, I kept those 613 laws pretty darn good, what's the answer going to be? Not good enough. Because what he expects is absolute perfect obedience. Absolute perfect obedience. So if you failed to keep any one of the 613 for any moment of your life here on earth, then you are lost and not saved. Keeping the law cannot save you. The law itself, while it gives us instruction and understanding and perspective about life in God, cannot in and of itself give us that life. The law is not designed to give us life. The law is designed to kill us. The law is designed to kill us. What that means is simply this. It's designed to show us that we deserve to die. It's not designed to give us the life that we so desperately need. The life that we lost as a, as a human race in the Garden of Eden when Adam first sinned. And all of us have followed in his example of sin. And the law cannot perfect us. In other words, it can't make us better and better by our efforts to apply it to our lives. Okay, let's look real quickly at some passages that make this point. Um, Romans 8.3, and I'm going to go through these fairly rapidly. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, that's because of our weakness, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the law could not save us, could not make us right with God, could not restore us to right relationship with God, could not fulfill its own righteous requirements in us. It could only expose how weak and how much of a failure spiritually we are. And then create in us the need and the awareness of the need for a Savior. Right? The next passage, Galatians 3. Galatians 3. 
verse 21. <clears throat> and again, going a little quickly here. <clears throat> it says, Galatians 3.21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And so we see that righteousness is by grace, not by the law. Righteousness is through the gospel, not by the law, because the law is not capable of giving us the new life that's necessary to enable us to please God and do what's right in His sight. In other words, our capacity to please God and do what's right in His sight changed because of the grace of God that reached inside of us and took out the old heart and replaced it with a new heart. It's that new heart that has the capacity to do what's right in His eyes, and that's only by the grace of God, not by the law of God. Okay, one last passage. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the law contains shadows, but not realities. Now that sounds somewhat strange when you first hear it. But what, what that is essentially describing to us is there are seeds in the law of what would later be the harvest of the new covenant. So what the Lord did was he showed us previews throughout all of the laws of the Old Testament of where he was eventually taking us in the new covenant and in Christ. But the law itself is not capable of taking us there. It can only describe in advance where we need to go. It can't get us there directly. Okay? All right, second question, and this one is a little bit shorter. This is, yes, we are. Hebrews chapter 8, and I know we're dealing with some difficult concepts here, and we're doing it fairly rapidly, so you can uh, definitely get that and listen to it later. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, says, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, first one what? The first covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The question was this, in what sense is the first covenant obsolete? The word that's translated obsolete here literally means old and worn out. And because it's old and worn out, it no longer is useful for its original intended purpose. All right? And so it's therefore no longer in force, and it's to be replaced by something that's new and better. The whole book of Hebrews is written to describe for us that the new covenant is a newer and better covenant that replaces the older and worn out covenant that God had established with Abraham. It doesn't, it's not completely different than the covenant with Abraham, but it's a newer and greater covenant built upon the concepts of the first and original covenant. So the first covenant has grown old, worn out, and is obsolete, which means that when you have a, on a timeline, when you have a, an old covenant 
and a new covenant. What's important to understand is from God's covenantal administration perspective, there can only ever be one covenant at a time in force. It's like a contract, but much more important even than a normal contract. If you make a contract between yourself and someone else for a certain activity of business, and that contract rules that circumstance, and later a person comes along and says, well, wait a second, I've got this other contract. You can't have two contracts at the same time because they conflict with each other. There can only be one contract ruling that relationship between you and that other person. This is true between God and his people. There can only ever be one covenant in force at any one time. And so Jesus, when he came, we know this wording, of course, from the, um, the Lord's Supper, in which he said, you know, this is a new covenant in my blood. All right? That new covenant replaces, supersedes the old covenant. So that now we relate to God on the basis of the new covenant, not on the basis of the old covenant. This is why, for instance, we don't travel to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices in a stone temple in the city of Jerusalem. We spiritually, by faith, look at the cross instead. If, we were un- if the old covenant were still in force and someone said, you know what, just look to the cross. Trust in Jesus. They, if the old covenant was still in force, they could rightly laugh in your face and say, that's not going to count. You've got to travel to Jerusalem and you've got to be sure to be there on the great day of atonement when the high priest goes into the temple and slays the, the lamb and pours out its blood at the, at the, uh, the base of the, the, uh, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And until that happens, you have no assurance that your sins are forgiven. That would be the case if the old covenant were still in force. But the new covenant has superseded and replaced the old covenant. It doesn't mean that the cross is completely different than the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It's different but not completely different because Jesus is the fulfillment of what that sacrifice in shadow and in type and in symbol was pointing forward to in history. And so there is a Lamb of God that sacrificed, but that took place for us on the cross and not in the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem. All right, last question. Do these two verses mean, the ones we've just studied, that the Old Testament no longer has any use for Christians? The answer to that is absolutely not. It is weak, it is useless, and it is ultimately obsolete in relationship to what? Our salvation and the basis of our salvation. But, and let me end with this last passage of Scripture. This will be the last one we look at. This is one of the, yeah, absolutely. This is one of the most important principles that we should always keep in mind when we're dealing with the Old Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Tell us, all Scripture, and of course all Scripture here is in reference not just to what we refer to as the New Covenant Scriptures, New Testament, but the Old Testament, Old Covenant Scriptures as well. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for 
One thing that's not mentioned is it's not profitable for saving us. It's not profitable for giving us life. It's not profitable for perfecting us. But it is profitable for this, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The idea here is, and I'm going to be the last person that will ever tell you the Old Testament is of no use to you. I read the Old Testament all the time. I study the Old Testament all the time. I meditate in the Old Testament all the time. I live according to the principles of the Old Testament, but not for the sake of saving me, giving me life and perfecting me, but for the sake of instructing me, for the sake of correcting me, for the sake of convicting me, and for the sake of training me. And that's the difference. The, the, the people of the Old Covenant looked at the commandments as their means of salvation and misunderstood the purpose of the commandments. We look at the commandments and see not that which saves us, but that which teaches us, that which convicts us, that which corrects us, and that which trains us. And it's important to keep those in those two separate categories. All right, now, if that um, created further questions for you, uh, I'll be available right after the study. I'll be glad to explain that a little further, but we're just past our time already, so let's end here tonight. And uh, this leaves me for next month needing more uh, open study questions if we're going to do an open study. So I'll leave that up to you to generate those. And if not, we'll continue forward with, the, uh, with our study in Ephesians.